You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, church. That was really good. Welcome to Kingsway. If you're visiting with us, welcome. Uh, Franco did a great job clearing the parking lot. Can't do a lot about the ice. Hope nobody slipped or fell coming in. Be careful going out. We're really glad you're here with us. As we kick off this series on Exodus, we're going to spend six weeks in Exodus. It's 40 chapters. So we obviously are going to go very quickly. There's lots of parts of today's story that we're going to have to fly through. i got to cover like three plus chapters today. So we're just going to start now. We'll just keep going until dinner tonight. We'll order in dinner. It'll be great. I'm just kidding. But for sake of helping you get the book better, please, 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 online, we created these devotions. Each devotion is about five minutes long. Read a chapter a day. I'm going to start today, even though we started releasing them six days ago. I'm going to start today. So just start going through Exodus chapter one, read chapter one, watch the devotion chapter one, then tomorrow do chapter two and so on. It'll help you so much to get the other chapters that we don't have time for in the book. All right. Without any further ado. Before I can get to Exodus, you have to understand a little bit about Genesis. So throughout the Bible, beginning in the very, very, very first chapter, we see this one theme that goes all the way to the book of Revelation, the very last book, and it plays prominent in every book in the Bible. And that is this, wherever there is chaos, God is bringing order. Wherever there is chaos, God is bringing order. And you have to anchor that truth into your heart and mind as we unpack this. Most of the book of Genesis is dedicated to three characters, a family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you don't know their story, I do have to tell it to you quickly. So God goes to a man named Abram or Abraham, and he tells him, you will be the father of many nations. You are going to have more descendants than you can imagine. In fact, at one point, he takes him out and says, look up at all these stars in the sky, Abraham. You're going to have more descendants than all the stars in the sky that you can count here. Then he, one time he takes them onto the sand of the shores and he says, look at all the sand. You're going to have more descendants than all the sand of the shores. But when Abraham dies, he has one son. Technically, he has two sons, but that's another story for another day. I don't have time for. But regardless, he's got two kids. It's like, what do you mean? How in the world am I going to have all these descendants? Well, his chosen son is Isaac, and then Isaac has Jacob and Esau, and then Jacob has the 12 tribes of Israel, and away we go into the story. And that's powerful because one of Jacob's sons is a guy named Joseph. Joseph uh, is the favorite son of Jacob, but his brothers hate him. And so his brothers come up with a plan to beat him up, and some of the brothers think we ought to kill him. And one of the brothers goes, let's not kill him, let's just beat him up and sell him as a slave. So they beat him up and they sell him as a slave, but they tell dad that he's dead. Now, what happens is poor Joseph, he's just at the time, the youngest brother, you know, he just isn't like his brothers are jealous of him. Like, what have I done wrong? So he goes as a slave and he ends up working hard and becoming respected by a guy named Potiphar. Potiphar is an important leader in Egypt. Well, he ends up appointing Joseph as like the leader in his household. And Joseph is doing a great job working for Potiphar. But Potiphar's wife is like, hey, that Joseph guy, He's pretty hot. So she concocts a plan to try to seduce him. And well, that doesn't go perfectly for her because he says no. And he runs out of the house to get away from her because he says, I'm not going to do this to my God. And she lies and says that Joseph tried to take advantage of her. So Potiphar has him thrown in prison. So now the poor guy's gone from not being loved by his brothers, beaten up and sold as a slave by his brothers, works as a slave, and now he's in jail. But while he's in jail, God brings about this perfect opportunity for him, even though it takes a while, to um, 
translate, I don't know the right word I'm looking for is a dream for Pharaoh. And he does, he predicts, hey, there's gonna be years of plenty. We're gonna have lots and lots and lots of resources and crops. And if we plan wisely in that season, the next season will be famine and it'll be so terrible that it'll, it'll kill all over the land, but we'll already have storehouses saved. Well, uh, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is so impressed with his plan. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. This is great. This is great. You're in charge of it all. So now if you track his story, it's like constant peak and valley. I wonder how many times Joseph in prison or perhaps when he was thrown into a cistern, beat up by his brothers, or when he was a slave working for Potiphar, how many times did he wonder, can't God see me? Is God paying attention to my story? Does he care what's going on with me? Can't God see me? Maybe you have felt like that before. Maybe your story's different than Joseph, so maybe it didn't look like being sold as a slave or thrown in prison. But maybe it looks like a medical diagnosis that came out of nowhere and it hit you like a left hook and you went, where did that come from? Or maybe it looks like, I don't know, brokenness between you and your spouse. And you'd wonder why all of a sudden they, they don't seem to care about you or your needs. Or maybe they've sinned against you. Or maybe it looks like a boss who keeps putting more and more and more and more and more on your plate and you keep crying out for release, but it's not happening. Just remember, wherever there is chaos, God likes to bring order. And what I intend to do today is just give you a few nuggets that we see in the story to help anchor into your soul. And my answer to this question, yes, yes, absolutely, God can see, but how do I know? Well, in order to understand this first, we have to go all the way back to Genesis. Remember, we go Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And this first character, Abraham, in that line of thinking, <laughs> he's having a conversation with God. And God tells him in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, then the Lord said to him, the him is Abraham, know for certain, I'm waiting for it to come up on the slides here. Hey, there we go. Know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. Why is that important? Well, this text was 500 plus, it's hard to know exactly, 500, 600 years before the book of Exodus. So God predicted exactly what was going to happen 600 years into the future. How in the world can God do that? Because he's God. And if he knew exactly what the Israelites were going to be going through 600 years into the future, can he know what's going on in your world today? And if he can know what's going on in your world today, whatever it is you're facing, whatever it is you're dealing with, do you think he could create a path that is the best for you? I don't know how many of you like coffee. I feel like Coffee is one of God's greatest gifts to mankind. But before we all went to Starbucks, before we all went to the gas station and somebody else brewed the coffee, before we all bought Keurigs and like bought little pods that were like cheating, we had to like make real coffee. Do you remember this? You had to pull out the coffee filter and you had to put it in and then you had to put like scoop out the coffee and put it in. And then if you really enjoy coffee, you had to put another scoop. And if you're a real man, you had to put in another scoop. 
right? Like if, if, the, if the stir stick could stand on its own, your coffee was thick enough. So, but what was glorious about coffee made the old way is it had to percolate. And that's part of what we're dealing with today. The truths that we're going to wrestle with throughout today, we know them in our head, but somehow we got to get them down into our heart. So it's not just that we think we know the truth and we've learned or studied the truth. It's that these truths are embraced and believed by us so that we actually can feel them and not just know them. And when you know the first anchor that has to percolate down into your heart, when you know that God knows everything, that he's already before you and behind you, he knows the future and he knows the past. He knows where you've been. He knows your temptations. He knows your struggles. He knows your sins. And he knows those of everybody around you. And it's not a problem for him because he already knows the future. Then he can know how to lead you from where you've been to where you're going. And we've got to let this percolate down. And the longer that it drips, the better that it tastes. So now we get to the book of Exodus. And what we learned in the very, very beginning is this, Exodus chapter one, verse six. Now Joseph, remember that guy we talked about? And all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. This is Bible way of doing hyperlink. Do you know what a hyperlink is? If you're ever typing in, say, a document, say, Word or whatever you're using, Mac OS, whatever, if you're typing in there and you want to stick a website in there, you go in, you add a hyperlink so that when somebody mouses over a word, they can click on it, right? And it'll open up the internet link that's going to tell them more information. That's this text. So when God went to Abram and Abraham and said, I will bless you. You will be the father of many nations. This is Exodus hyperlink way of saying God is doing everything he promised he would ever do. The people are thriving, but it's created a problem. And the problem is this, the new king, we're roughly, the Bible says, 400 years into the future now. The new king, he doesn't know Joseph in his story. He's forgotten all about that. We're way into the future now. And he doesn't really know, he doesn't really care. What he sees is a group of people who are outsiders, Israelites, living in Egypt, and they're growing like crazy. And he thinks to himself, this is not good. If these people get big enough, powerful enough, they're gonna overthrow us. Or if one of our enemy nations come to fight against us, they're gonna join with them, and together they're gonna overthrow us. This is a problem. We gotta stop this growth. So it says they made their work harder. And it made their work more painful. And he increased the difficulty of the work, hoping that if their lives got harder, they'd stop growing in number. It's an outside way to try to exert force and control the situation. The key to surviving hard times is to look for God's activity in the middle of it. That's exactly what Exodus is trying to anchor into our souls. And this is important for us. Because when it says that they're increasing in number, I get it. You may think having more kids in your home, especially on a couple of snow days where you can't go outside and you're stuck right in the house together, you're thinking, I don't want more kids. That's not a blessing from the Lord. But it is if you're an agricultural society and more kids means more help, means more work, and it shows the faithfulness of God producing the fruit of your loom or whatever you want to call that. All right, so <laughs> this is a good thing. And the thing that has to get from our head to our heart is the belief that this, when life is really, really hard and life is really stressful because it gets that way sometimes, 
Look for God's work around you. God will be doing little things around your life to encourage your faith so that you don't quit. But the thing that drives us absolutely crazy is that God doesn't resolve our problem in our way and our time, does he? We see that throughout this story. God has a way of leading Israel and God has a way of leading us and it drives us crazy. And the reality is we think we know more. Hi, my name is Matt Nickerson and I like to think I know more than God sometimes. We want God to do things our way with our ideas and our time. And we're okay if he doesn't do it in our way, I guess, maybe, as long as he does it in our time, like right now, now, now. One, two, three, now. Ready to go. But God has this way of taking a while. And in the waiting, he's doing something for our good. Exodus 1, verse 12 but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and all kinds of work in the fields. And all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. But it doesn't work. The harder they are worked, the more oppressive the regime comes over them, the more they multiply. And the Pharaoh, the king over Egypt, he's like, ah, this drives me crazy. I can't figure this out. And I'm scared. So he comes up with a new plan. He goes to the Egyptian midwives and he tells the midwives, okay, your job is when you go in to help the Israelite women give birth, your job is to kill the babies. This, a couple of phenomenal articles, this would have been an ancient form of abortion. But the midwives feared God and they didn't do it. In fact, in verse 20, it says, so God was kind to the midwives and the people increased. It became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Again, look for God's activity in the middle of the pain. Throughout chapter one, we see you know, oppression, growth, more oppression, more growth, plan to kill the babies, more growth. And the thing about it all is God's promise to Abraham is coming true. You can hang on God's word to do everything he has promised he will do. Nothing, no one can thwart that, period. And here we see this. That's why it says, and the people increased. So even though the king keeps trying to harm the people of God, God's saying, no, we're not doing it that way. But I want to pause for a moment, stop the Israelite story and the God story and take a look at this for a second because he's midwives. He blesses them too. The Egyptians are not the Israelites. But that's the point. This is not a story of Israel. This is a story of God. This is what God is doing in the world, moving things from chaos to order over and over and over again. So wherever in your life you're experiencing chaos, God is moving it into order. This is exactly what Paul is trying to get to in Romans 8 when he says, God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. It's not that there isn't pain. It's not that there isn't evil. It's not that there isn't hardship. It's not that there isn't chaos. It's just that wherever you find those things, you will find God even more. That's why Psalm 34, David cries out, the Lord is close or near to the brokenhearted. The more painful of whatever you're going through, the closer you will find your Lord to be. It's a God story. 
And I know that because God's watching even over these Egyptian midwives. So they choose to do the right thing and not the evil thing. And God says, I'll take care of you too. So God steps in and he says he gave them even families of their own. It's another verse that's testifying to the goodness of God in the answer. Can't God see me? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Well, how do I know? Look for God's activity in your life. Yeah, you can clap for God. I love spontaneous clapping. Yeah, I love it. You can interrupt me anytime, clap for God. All right, but here's the thing. Proverbs 29, 25 says, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Do you know what a snare is? It's a trap that hunters use. You know, they set it out in the woods so that bunnies, whatever, squirrels, foxes, we gotta find out what that stupid thing says. Whatever it is, nobody? Some of you don't know that song. Google it later, all right. A snare is a trap to catch something. And what Proverbs is telling us is fear of man will prove to be a snare. What is it you're most afraid of right now? What is it that most terrifies you right now? Is it displeasing your boss or your spouse or your kids? Is it about not measuring up? Is it about not having enough? Is it about running out of money? Is it about being alone? Is it about a sickness or a disease for you or for a loved one? Is it about losing something? What is it you're most afraid of? Because wherever you find that, you'll find some important things about yourself. But what we're learning is fear of man is a trap because as soon as you start to live to satisfy that fear, you'll actually find yourself outside of God's will. And then what? However, those who put their fear in the right place, whoever trusts in the Lord will find that they are actually kept safe. And that's the root of this entire story that we're going through in Exodus. So I got a one, two, skip a few just a moment. So all of a sudden, chapter two begins, and a baby is born. But the problem is, when Pharaoh can't get it done through oppression, he can't get it done through more oppression, he can't get it done by having the midwives kill the babies, these Israelites keep growing and growing and growing. His fear is getting worse. So he decides to order that all Israelite babies under a certain age, male babies, are killed. And then one baby is born, and his name is Moses. And what's interesting about this baby is he survives. His mama hides him for a few months until she can't hide him anymore, that she puts him in a basket, floats him down the river, and eventually Pharaoh's own daughter, who probably doesn't say, but we can kind of assume, she doesn't necessarily love or agree with dad's decisions. So she takes the baby, probably recognizes this isn't an Egyptian baby, it's probably an Israelite baby, she brings him to the home and starts to raise him. And we know from biblical text, Moses was raised for about 40 years in that home. And somewhere along the way, he got really angry because he saw one of these Egyptian taskmasters oppressing the Israelites. And this is where you pause the story. This is all happening in like 12 verses in chapter two. But if you stop for a second and go, wow, we just literally summarized 40 years of a man's life in about 12 verses. Yep. But why that's important is because he knows that he's an Israelite. He knows he's raised in Pharaoh's home, but he's watching this oppression. And you can almost sense this anger popping up in Moses over and over and over. And one day he just can't take it anymore. And he snaps. Some of y'all know what that feels like, right? And he goes and he attacks one of these overseers, these taskmasters, and he kills the man. And he tries to bury him in the sand. And he's all proud of himself. 
And the next day, he sees some Israelites fighting, and he tries to break it up. Like, Moses is trying to figure out how to solve the problem. And they look at Moses, they're like, what, are you going to kill us too? And he goes, oh, no. People know. And then all of a sudden, the Pharaoh wants to kill Moses. And Moses decides, I can't live here anymore. I got to get out of here. So he runs for his life to a town called Midian. And that's where we kind of pick up here. Because if you read verse 23, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Do you notice a word used twice here? It's an interesting word. This word, groaned. And it's used again, groaning. Groaning gives that impression, doesn't it? It's not just I'm praying, oh God, help me. God, give me wisdom today. God, provide for me. God, protect me. Groaning is a, ah! God, make it stop. When is this ever gonna go away? Why here? Why now? Groaning has this guttural depth of sorrow and pain and suffering attached to it, doesn't it? It's an important word. It's one that Paul picks up on. See, the story of Exodus is the story of the Bible. You will find the Exodus story in almost every single book in the Bible in some way or another because it is the story of God bringing order from chaos, of God setting free that which is enslaved, of God redeeming that which is his. And we see it, the entire book of Matthew maps over the book of Exodus. If somebody ever shows it to you, it is unbelievable. Matthew knew exactly what he was doing. Paul uses it, Hebrews uses it, the Psalms use it, Proverbs uses it. Almost everybody refers back to this one story because it's an archetype, it's a picture, it's a kind of way that God does this over and over and over again. In fact, in Romans chapter eight, Paul tells us about the same thing. He says, we actually live in a world right now that is groaning to be set free. The entire creation, he says, is groaning in pains like childbirth. Any of the women in this room know what that feels like. Do you remember the groaning of that moment? He said the whole earth is like this. It's like longing to be set free. And what he's saying is the earth is being impacted by our sin in ways we can't understand. So when volcanoes are erupting out in the middle of the ocean and sending tsunamis to devastate other lands, when snow is pouring down upon you, causing dangerous habitats for people to drive on in dangerous situations, when COVID is running rampant and cancers are running rampant all over the place, this is creation crying out, longing to be set free. It is groaning waiting for its re release from sin and death. Then it goes on and he says, not only is creation crying out, but we are crying out. Our own bodies are wasting away. Sometimes our bodies are impacted by the sins of others. Sometimes our bodies are impacted by our own choices and they're groaning. I hurt my hamstring about four months ago while training for a half marathon. I haven't been able to run now, except for like a couple times it was really painful. Since then, I've seen doctor after doctor. I made a stupid decision when I was 13 years old. I split my pelvic bone into on the growth plate. I've had MRIs and x-rays over the last few weeks. And basically nobody has an answer except for this stinks. And I am groaning in pain all the time when I sit, when I stand, when I run, when I breathe, pretty much everything that I do. And I'm groaning, longing to go back and tell 13-year-old me, don't worry about what anybody thinks of you. Quit trying to show off. But I can't go back. I can only go forward. 
And so I groan and ask for release. And Paul says in Romans, yeah, but there's one more person who's groaning through your pain with you. And this is one of those truths we have to take from our head and let it percolate down to our heart. And here it is, Romans chapter eight, verse 26. He says, and in the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless, what's the word there? Groans. Paul is not doing this on accident. Paul is reading the book of Exodus. Paul is simply saying, we live in a world that is inundated by sin and the effects of sin, and we all feel it all the time. The earth feels it, you feel it, your family feels it, your kids feel it, your parents feel it, your friends and your enemies feel it, and you feel it every day. And when you are literally out of words, have you ever had that moment? God, I don't know what else to ask. I don't know what else to pray for. I feel at a complete loss. God says, don't feel hopeless because I'm groaning with you too. I'm with you, I see you, I care about you. There's nothing that you are facing right now that is beyond me. I got you, I'm holding you, I love you, I'm here for you, and when you don't even know what to say anymore, I'm gonna say it for you, that's how much I care. I will not let it go unsaid. And he goes on, he says, and he who searches our hearts, this is God, knows the mind of the Spirit, because the spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. In other words, I, like, it's like Paul mumbo jumbo. In other words, the Holy Spirit knows God's will and the Holy Spirit knows our hearts. And so he bridges the gap between the two and makes sure that the cries of your heart are heard by God. We could end the sermon, but yeah, we can clap for that. We could end the sermon, we aren't going to. But here's the thing I need you to get. You gotta get it in your head, you gotta let it sink into your heart, you gotta tell yourself this truth every single day. God's answer to our pain is to give us himself. That's his answer. See, what we want is we want God to say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take care of that problem, I'm gonna take care of it right now. And sometimes God says, I'm not. I'm working on it but it's gonna take time. I got a lot of pieces to move here. Or sometimes God says, I'm gonna let this one stay, but I will be with you through it all. I don't always know which one God's gonna do. That frustrates the, the, the control freak in me that wants to be the one in control. But God's answer isn't to relieve all of my pain and problems. God's answer is to say, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. So stay with me because I'm with you. And we see this in the story of Exodus. So as it would go, again, we're 40 years or so that Moses is in Egypt. Then he runs out to Midian and he's in Midian another like 40 years. He meets a girl, they fall in love, they get married, they get some kids. And he's working for his father-in-law who's a wealthy man. I mean, he goes out there with nothing. He's got nothing. And this man takes him into his home and gives him his daughter. I mean, this is a good situation. And so he's taking care of his flocks. And one day he's got to take them way out into the wilderness. And he's out there taking care of the flocks. And all of a sudden he looks off and he sees something crazy going on. It looks like a fire, but how could there be a fire out here? And it's not burning up. It's still a fire. Like normal, sooner or later you think that thing would smolder. And it's not. And so Moses goes, huh, I probably ought to go check out what that is. So as he gets closer, he sees that there is a bush that is burning, but it's not burning up. And Moses knows this is weird. 
Something's going on right here. And it says in Exodus chapter three, verse four, when the Lord saw that he had gone over, as Moses had gone over to look, God called him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. He has no idea how right that phrase is. We'll get to that. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Let's just stop there for a second. What just happened right here is Moses just entered sacred space. I did a sermon on this a few years ago, but do you know what sacred space is? Sacred space is simply a space set aside or dedicated to a specific purpose. There is an area in your house, inside your bathroom, and it is set aside and dedicated for primarily one, maybe two purposes. That's it. That is a It's not a holy space. It's not a biblical space. It's not a space where God does or doesn't reside. It's just a space that is dedicated. This bush that is on fire but not burning up has become a sacred space. And sacred in the sense of it's dedicated to the presence of the Lord. And the reason this is so profound and so powerful for us is because it teaches us something about where we are today. We're at a different epoch in history from where Moses is. Moses longed for what you're experiencing. I hear people who read the book of Exodus and they think, oh, what would it have been like to see the, the Nile turn to blood? Or what would it have been like to see the frogs and the gnats or the darkness? Or what would it have been like to see the splitting of the sea? What would it be like to see the, the cloud by day and fire by night? Oh, wouldn't that have been amazing? And Moses is going, what would it be like to have God living inside me? And that's what you have. What would it be like to have the spirit and the presence of God 24-7 inside me, speaking to me, encouraging me, challenging me, interceding for me? What would that be like? Because as I talked about briefly last week, if you weren't here, I'll summarize it, but you missed something. In Luke 9 and 10, God sends the disciples out. He says, don't take anything with you. Don't take your staff or your clothes or money. You'll be the stinking disciples. Remember, don't do any of that. Why? Because you're sacred space. God will be with you. You will be like a tree that is on fire for the Lord, but not burnt up. Because wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The spirit of the Lord is on his people. Moses has just come into a holy place. And this is why we talk about holy. He says, take off your shoes, Moses. This isn't any common place. You are no common person when you are in Jesus Christ. You are holy and set apart. Do you struggle with suicidal ideations ever? That you do not understand how precious you are. You do not understand that when God's spirit is inside you, you are a holy place. Do you ever struggle with, I don't know, depression and wonder if God is even listening or cares about you? You do not understand how much God loves you and adores you and cares about you. You are sacred space set apart by God for his purposes. Do you ever wonder if there's a meaning and a purpose to your life? If so, you've got to get a bigger view of what God is doing in the world because you are sacred space filled up with God's presence. You are set apart for him. And this is why Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength. Start to view your entire life differently because what he is doing in you is not common anymore. This is separate space, sacred space. You are special and holy. And he goes on and he says to Abraham, 
I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Remember, this is the setup. That's all Genesis, basically. This is important. This actually gets picked up in later New Testament books because God refers to them as if they're still alive. I, he didn't say, I was the God. I am the God. I'm still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They may not be here on this earth anymore, but they are very much alive. And I am still their God. And I am here to speak to you, Moses. This means something. Moses may be going, man, I've heard about those guys. I know a little bit about those guys. This is a terrifying moment. I am meeting a holy God right now. And it says Moses was so terrified, he hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And why is that relevant? Man, I wish I had a whole sermon time to do on fear of God. I'm going to give like three very unjust minutes to it. But here's the root of the entire scripture's teaching on fear. Ready? We obey the one we fear. That's it. And what Moses is about to go through is going to be terrifying. Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt. I want you to go back there. I can't go back there. Why not? Do you know what I did there? Do you know what they want to do to me there? Yep. But I'm with you. You're going to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. I'm going to do what? Do you know who he is? Do you know who I am? And God's answer is, do you know who I am? But see, that's the point. If you're more afraid of your boss than you are God, then when your boss asks you to do something unethical, you'll do it. We obey the one we fear. If you're more afraid of your spouse than you are God, then when they tell you or encourage you or challenge you to do something that's disarming to God, you'll do it. When you're afraid your kids won't measure up in some way or another according to the world's standards, if that's your greatest fear, then you'll make decisions to cheat or lie or steal because you don't have a fear of the Lord. At the end of the day, we obey the one we fear. And what God is going to do in Moses over these next few minutes, really over these next 40 years, is he's going to anchor his soul that, Moses, I'm bigger than all those things. But because you fear me, you have nothing to fear. God doesn't want us afraid of him in the way that just causes us to shake and to tremble. I know this because 1 John chapter 4, I think it's verse 18 says, if we are afraid of God, it's because we're afraid of punishment and we have not come to a full experience of his love. If we're afraid of God in a way that like we get afraid of, say, when somebody walks in a room with a gun in their hand, or we get afraid of God, like, I don't know, you're, you're somewhere and like all of a sudden an earthquake happens. You know, if you're afraid of God in those ways that you do not understand God, he desires to be worshipped, but out of worship, he desires to care for you and love you and provide for you and meet your needs. This is who he is. It's his character. And we know it's a truth, but we've got to take that truth and remind ourselves daily so that it drips down into our hearts and we can actually believe it and embrace it and feel it in every part of who we are. And then Moses has this conversation with God. The Lord said, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And you may go, that's a weird thing to have flowing out of a land. But if you've been slaves who've been oppressed and your babies have been killed, you barely survive, you can't get enough 
resources to make work happen. Milk and honey sounds real comforting, doesn't it? Like it points to the abundance. It's going to come in a plethora. That sounds good. But I need you to get this. We're almost 80 years from the book of Egypt. Sorry, from the beginning of Exodus. I don't know what that was, where that, was, where that came from. We're almost 80 years from the beginning of Exodus. 80 years. It's been a minimum of 80 years since these Israelites have been crying out. Like, why now? What took you so long? But God says, I know you may not understand what I've been doing. I know it seems like I'm slow. It may seem like I'm not paying attention, but I have indeed seen. I have heard. I am paying attention. So then he goes on and he says, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. You got to practice that before you say that out loud, right? Come on now. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. These groups here, you don't, there's a whole like scholarly study thing we could do. The biggest thing you need to know is this is the promised land. They currently own it and they're the biggest, most terrifying evil forces on the face of the planet. And God's saying, I'm gonna take you out of here and I'm gonna go there and I'm gonna give you their land. And Moses hears all this. And basically what happens over the next chapter and a half is Moses has an argument with God. He's like, but I can't do it. I don't have what it takes. I can't go back there. They want to kill me. Do you know what I did? And God's like, yep, I'm sending you anyway. But I don't speak good. Yep, I'm sending you anyway. But I don't, I don't know enough. Yep, I'm going to send you anyway. And Moses gets anxious and he's trying to argue with God, figure out a way to like change God's mind on this whole thing. God's not buying it, by the way. And in Exodus chapter three, verse 13, Moses says to God, okay, suppose, suppose, like let's just theorize for a minute, God, that I actually do this. Suppose I go to Israel, the Israelites, like just the Israelites. And I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what's his name? What am I supposed to tell them? And I, I talked about this last Sunday night on our worship night. And a lot of you weren't there, so you missed it probably. But man, let me just bring you up to the speed a little bit. This is huge. The name, the name is such a big deal. Uh, my wife and I, we went to uh, Taiwan in 2009 to bring our son home. And the, the orphanage, the, the home where we, we brought our home, son home from was down at the bottom and up on top of a hill was a, a, a temple, a Taoist temple. And they would beat their drums like all day long on, like, in worship to their gods. So I asked the missionary if I could go up and visit the temple and he took me up. And when you go inside, there are literally just all these different, like it's all outdoors, but it's all like different rooms and hallways. And there's these big statues. Some of the statues are ancestors of the people. Some of the statues are other gods that people worship or, or divine beings is what he was explained. And in front of all the statues are plates of food and money. And there was a parade that came through right when we were there. And in this parade, there's a guy out front and he's literally whipping himself to bleeding on his back. And he's trying to appease the gods and people are walking in line. They've got these tiny little statues. And what we were told is these are the house statues. And they take the house statues in to the big statues. Then they ask the statues to bless them. And everything's got a name. And so what they're doing is they're crying out to the name. And they're asking, invoking the name in order to have something happen for them. And this is what's going to happen, especially in chapter six through 10, when God goes into Egypt and he goes toe to toe with the false gods. And each God has a name. Maybe it's Ra. It's the God of the sun, the God of the frogs, the God of the Nile, the God of the crops, the God of the animals, the God of the sickness, the God of fertility. And what happens is you call in a name. You want to get pregnant? Call in a name. You need land? 
Call on a name. You need crops? Call on a name. You need water? Call on a name. And you invoke these names, and then you try to do whatever you're told you have to do to please them, and they will act on your behalf. But they're fickle, these gods. They rarely listen because they actually have no power at all. And Moses is saying, well, who am I supposed to say sent me? Which of these gods is you? And God's response to Moses, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're saying to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. You can almost hear Moses going, anything else? (laughs) But see, here is where we got to bring this home because this is the power of the whole thing. In chapter six, and actually if you started the devotions when we launched them, but chapter six, which is today's, verses two and three, God says to Moses, in the past, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I revealed myself as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But now I will be known as the Lord. And the Lord is like a trick to you. If you see Lord capitalized in your English translations, it's always this, Yahweh. But because God tells Moses later not to take the name in vain, Yahweh, we don't dare misuse it or overuse it. And so they just translated it to Lord, Adonai a lot of times, or in English, capitalize it as Lord so that we wouldn't overuse it as well. But the name I am, literally I am who I am or I am that I am. And what that means is this, Moses, you aren't gonna find anything on this earth that can represent me. I made the Nile. I made the birds. I made the cattle, I made the earth, I make it rain, I make it stop raining, I made the sun, I made all of it. There's not one thing in all of creation that you could name that would represent me. I am the uncreated one. I am who I am. Nobody else made me, I am. I make everything else, I am. Oh God, yeah. I am all powerful. I am unbelievably beautiful. I am all knowing. I am capable. I am smart enough. And I am the one who has come to rescue you. So when they ask, who sent me? Just say, Yahweh. And they're gonna say, who's that? And you'll say, you'll see. And the reason this is so powerful for us today is because I don't know where you are and I don't know what you're facing, but remember, God's answer to your hardest problems is himself. He is your answer. And some of you may be thinking to yourself, God, I'm scared. I don't know how the situation in front of me is gonna get resolved. To which God says, I am. But God, I don't feel like I have enough resources. I am. God, I'm really, really scared. The doctors don't seem to have an answer for me. I am. Nobody listens to me. I am. But I feel so alone. I am. Nobody cares about me. I am. 
God, I can't sleep at night. I'm just so overwhelmed with anxiety about how everything's going to turn out, God. How am I going to make this work? I am. Do you see how this works? Just tell them, I am. Church, I am is still for you. Ever-present, all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing, always listening, God. And you could trust him today. If you've never placed your hope and your faith in God, I want to encourage you right now, you could just raise your hand if you are ready to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. This message may be hitting you hard and you're like, I don't even know what I need. I just need whoever that God is. I need him. We want to help you and explain that to you. If you want to raise your hand, we got people that are going to come around and find you. And we're going to pray. So this is perfect because while we're praying, they're going to keep their eyes open. You can just raise your hand while we're praying and they'll come to you while we're praying. Let's go talk to I am. Father in heaven, thank you for being what we need always at every moment, all the time. And God, thank you for being that for every single person in this room. So God, no matter what each of us is individually going through, you are I am to us. So God, we can trust you. We can lean on you. And God, for some of us, at least for me, this is a head issue. It's not a heart issue. I think I said that backwards. It's a heart issue. It's not a head issue. I know these things are true, God. I just have a hard time believing them and trusting them and embracing them in certain moments in my life. So God, help them to drip down and seep into my heart deeply, strongly. God, that I would truly believe you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. God, we love you, trust you. So increase our faith, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.